I said, good morning. There we go. I did my very best to uh, urge Jeff to let us break in the story today and to discuss the parable of the sheep and the goats. As we have the illustration so readily at hand, uh, Derek will be one to attest to you that each morning now I am awakened by their bleeding mat. Um, I know, it's not Father's Day, Dad's jokes are out. Uh, but uh, this morning we are rejoining the story of God as told by Matthew. Uh, I dig Matthew. I'm named Matthew, so I'm a little invested in this character in Scripture. Matthew's a tax collector turned disciple. I don't know if you have discussed this at the onset of this sermon or this series, this traveling through Matthew, but tax collectors were like the scourges of their people. Why? Because they're making their living not only extracting taxes from an oppressor to their people, but they're also skimming off the top most often. So it's interesting to me that it's Matthew who's tasked to tell the Jesus event, the Jesus story to an audience that was largely the early Christians most uh, attached and most appreciative of their Jewish heritage. It's almost like, Matthew, you're the one who gave the Jewish folks such a hard time. You're one of them. They don't trust you. You tell the story. I think that's fascinating. And I think it's interesting because our God is a God who is always redeeming and restoring. Not just with the story, but with the vehicle, with the person who tells the story. So it's with this that I stand up in front of you today, going to be discussing one of the major themes of Scripture, the idea of purity and impurity, tradition and truth. And uh, I'm reminded that I am definitely not the purest person out there. I don't know who is. I guess we could have a contest and see what that looks like. I don't think God's interested in that. But you just need to know that whoever uh, is up here in this stage, this isn't my story. This is our story. And that we're all vessels in need of God's redemption and restoration. And this is our chance to engage and wrestle with the challenges and the invitations that Jesus calls us into. So, we'll begin uh, with me doing what I like to do, and that is begin with a prayer by someone who I respect a lot, Walter Brueggemann, as we start this portion of our worship service. And this prayer is entitled, Yes. Join me in your hearts, if you will. You are the God who is simple, direct, clear with us and for us. You have committed yourself to us. You have said yes to us in creation. Yes to us in our birth. Yes to us in our baptism. Yes to us in our awakening this day. But we are of another kind more accustomed to perhaps, or maybe, or we'll see, left in wonderment and ambiguity. We live our lives not back to 
your yes, but out of our endless perhaps. So we pray for your mercy this day. That we may live yes back to you. Yes with our time. Yes with our money. Yes with our sexuality. Yes with our strength and with our weakness. Yes to our neighbor. Yes and no longer perhaps. In the name of your enfleshed yes to us. Even Jesus who is our yes into your future. We all say amen. So picking up our story in Matthew 15, we want to remember from last week that Jesus and the disciples have just had their rather unconventional nautical adventure. Jesus and Peter walking on the water and then landing on the other side of the water only to have Jesus once again resume his role as healer and miracle worker. Now, by the way, if you have not yet listened to Jeff, if you missed it last week, maybe you were serving Uh, somewhere else in the church, or you weren't here. Uh, If you haven't listened to him explore this passage in relationship to the role of doubt in our faith uh, journeys, you really should take a listen to the podcast itself. And it's it's a great, great sermon and a great reminder that we walk in our doubt uh, as seeds for our faith. So, After some indeterminate amount of time has elapsed, Jesus healing these folks, Matthew informs us that some Pharisees and scribes, read religious people of the day, have come to question him regarding the impure habits that they are engaged in. Now, as we read this passage, I want to uh, preface it by giving you a couple of things to think through. The theme of today's talk will be that of truth versus tradition and then purity versus impurity. The basic outline of the passage or the story we're exploring is Jesus is questioned on these matters. Jesus, as is his type of response, responds in a way that gets to the very heart of the matter. Remember, he's clear, he's direct, he's forthright with us. The religious leaders aren't used to this. They're angered. The disciples, as is their initial and normal response, are confused and concerned. And Jesus has to explain himself to them using the form of a parable. The parable is then followed by an event handpicked, selected by its author, Matthew, to further contextualize for his readers. The people who are reading this account of the story, not those present in that moment, but those reading how purity versus impurity is being played out in their context and in their time. And then finally, Jesus resumes his healing practice, which again is in and of itself a case study in this idea of purity versus impurity. So we're going to read from Matthew 15. This is the New Living Translation. There's several good translations out there. I encourage you to read many of them. See what they're, uh, see how they're similar. See where they're different. This is often how we can kind of parse out, how we can fish out what the interpreters are having to make their pieces on is where they differ and where they're the same. But I thought the NLT was very clear. So let's just uh, go there now. Some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonially hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, 
And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. If you're listening right now, Dad, I just want to say I'm sorry for anything I've ever said about you. I love you. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees but what you just said? Jesus should have said, Hold my cup at this point because he's going to go on over and over to offend the Pharisees. But Jesus replied instead, Every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They're blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they'll both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, "Ah, this is Peter, explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked, anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. It's after this that uh, Matthew places this context, this story here. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then the disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all of her begging. And then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came to him, worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. And Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And then in genius, maybe desperation, probably both. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted and her daughter was instantly healed. Continuing on, Jesus returns to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill, sat down. A vast crowd brought to him people who were lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. The lame were walking, and the blind could see again, and they praised the God of Israel. So we see here, Jesus is tested by the authorities on his unconventionality 
on his breaking with tradition of his, in that day and in that context, sinning. He gets back into it with them and then he comes to the larger crowd and he gives a parable. The disciples are like, man, what? And he's, he's to the disciples. Are you yet again so slow to the uptake, folks? Can you not get read between the lines, boys? You've been traveling with me. And so he has to say it very directly and clearly to them again. And then we have this account of this Gentile woman. Again, a person who is decidedly impure and unclean. Both by her status as a lady, by her status as a foreigner, by her status of being a person of another religion. She comes to Jesus, and we've talked about this before, so we're not going to go into this in length. But Jesus opens up what was once thought to be only Israel's to a much larger context. And people preparing the way that the gospel is not going to be bound by any borders. It is open and available to whosoever. And then not only Matthew goes, pushes the point by saying that Jesus is again doing the work of the kingdom of heaven, the work of the kingdom of God, by being with the sick, the infirm, the lame, the crippled, those who can't speak or hear, those who are cast off and unclean and impure. He once again is providing them with healing, which says this. I don't know if I'll have time to unpack all this, so I just want to say this right here. When we deal with things of impurity and purity, much of what we're doing is psychological boundaries. So there's a reason why there were laws to not be with those who were diseased and infirmed. They didn't have uh, the doctors over here on my left to help them and educate them in modern science. But instead, this was a way to just keep uh, pathogens from traveling, from contagion not to set in among a whole people. So they were kept away here. And when we talk about things where we see people who are not only infirm or sick, but who for whatever reason are not like us, there is a psychological um, rule of life at play that says, I have to keep them away from my own safety. Richard Beck, who's a wonderful author, you need to check out his blog, Experimental Theology. He is a psychologist who deals with disgust theory. Has a lot to say about what we're going to be talking about, but he also makes this point. When it comes to those things which should keep us away so that it won't pollute us. The gospel differs because the God we serve goes into the hurting, goes into the pain, goes into the danger and redeems it. Psychologically, we as people are tribal and we say us and them. Jesus' huge message in the gospel is it's only us. And the point is, is that we used to believe in the church really early on. 
the old adage, the old verse, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Listen, it's appropriate to set boundaries at times, but if your faith is not causing you to go into and to risk redeeming a situation rather than just protecting yourself, then you may not be, we may not be following the way of Jesus. And that's something to consider. All right. So a couple of authors I'm indebted to in this thought. You just need to, I need to shout their name out for academic uh, reasons. N.T. Wright, Marcus Borg, Richard Beck, Dallas Willard. Check them out. Talk to me about them later. Truth versus tradition. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, uh, why are you so loose with the rules? How in the world can you be teaching people? How can you be seen as an authorized rabbi, as a teacher, as a leader of the people, if you're not even handling the basic ceremonial cleansing? Jesus, your disciples are not even washing their hands and praying before they eat. I mean, that's, that's Jewish 101, okay? And you would think Jesus would sit down and say, let's have a cup of coffee. Let's chat about this. Let's work this out. But Jesus was on a mission and he knew his time was short. And sometimes you don't have time to go around it. And Jesus just gets to the point and he says, why do you dishonor God and break all of the traditions, the heart, the law of it by this? And he takes this account. And there's this tradition in Jewish scripture that you're supposed to write. This is one of the big ten. This is God's top ten, the the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and your father. And what in part that meant was when they get older, you are to take care of them. Right? We didn't really have nursing homes back then or senior citizen centers or those kind of pieces. So you had to take care of them. But what was happening is these Pharisees and these scribes, religious leaders, were getting to the point To where they're saying, the temple had instituted this practice that says, well, if you come to the temple and you make a monetary donation or a sacrifice, you can write that off against what you owe your parents. So, in other words, if you don't want to have to go to the bother of giving the resources to take care of your mom and dad in their older age because now they're annoying you or they're hindering you or it's inconvenient. Come and give your gift and you'll be square with God. I'm not going to get into why this was a good deal for the temple at the time that Jesus is going to speak against. But Jesus says... Guys, you're worried about hand washing and you're missing the whole thrust of what God is about. This is tradition versus truth. This is the idea that we can get comfortable in our faith and our faith becomes a mechanism by which we can put our journey with God on autopilot. We show up to church. 
We do the things that a church person does. We give a certain amount of our income, gross or net, I don't know. We, we put these things into practice. We don't do these things. We keep these ceremonial boundary markers that means I'm in the club. I'm in. I'm a Christian. And we miss the point that God is saying, I don't want your tradition I'm giving you truth. I didn't come to abolish the law, Jesus says. I came to fulfill it. Every little bit of it. Because I'm getting to the heart of the matter. And you, with all of your perfunctory, normalized traditions and exercises, are missing it. See, Jesus isn't right here just saying, I'm tired of tradition. Tradition's stupid. It's old. Who cares, right? I'm going to wear clothes I want to wear instead of a suit and tie. Although, Derek, that was an incredible tie. I just want to say last week that was awesome. It was ugly. Sorry, uh, Jeff. No, it was, it was lovely. If you weren't here, you'll have to listen to the podcast. Anyway, Beth gets it. Thank you, Beth. It's very encouraging. Um. There is an impulse in our faith to say, that doesn't work anymore. That's stupid. Let's not do that. Let's get rid of all tradition. Tradition's bad. Tradition's not bad. Tradition's only bad when it's substituted for the truth behind it. I don't care if we sing Amazing Grace the old way or if we throw in a little, my chains are gone. That's a point of keeping the old, and then also bringing a little of what it bears on us right now in this moment in the idioms that we understand. The Grove is not a traditional church for Bryson City. It's not a traditional church for most of the world, in my opinion. But it does have traditions. We did go out and have a water baptism. We still get together and sing and pray and play. And greet with one another. Greet one another with God. We, we still get together and do things because that's who we are. That's traditions that are meant to be kept. So, let me just move on here. But, Jesus takes that little example and launches a major attack on the Pharisees. He says they're play actors. The word hypocrite literally means someone who puts on a mask to play a part. The mass, says Jesus, is the words the Pharisees use. Behind their words or customs of piety, their hearts have no intention of really discovering what God desired. They have elevated mere human customs to the status of divine commands. You see, we need to ask on a regular basis, as Christian leaders, whether we're teaching the right things. We need to ask ourselves, is what we're teaching, is what we're doing as a community, is that growing out of Scripture? Is that growing out of the truth that God has brought to us? Or whether these things have simply become human traditions that need to be challenged because it's old-fashioned or we say it's not up to date. Jesus wasn't just saying tradition is dangerous. If in doubt, go for innovation. In fact, his own critics of the 
Pharisees was that their more recent traditions had undermined the ancient and foundational word of God. And so, guys, that's why serious study of church history, serious study of the word of God as we see it in the Bible, remains at the very core, the very heart of the church's life and task. And it's not just for leaders, it's for all of us. See, unless we have constantly been refreshed by and challenged by the Scripture, we won't have our wits about us enough to distinguish between healthy and hypocritical traditions or between life-giving innovations and deadly ones. My friend Lynn Sweet says to go forward, you have to go back. This is called doing the ancient future thing. Right? If we're going to move into a world where we need to know, where are the boundary markers anymore? I don't even know. Is everything up for grabs? What's going on? Then we need to really familiarize ourselves with what's at the heart of the ancient traditions that we own as followers of Jesus. So that's the first thing. After that, Jesus called out to the crowd. He said, here's this parable. He says, it's not what goes in your mouth that defiles you. That goes into the sewer. What defiles you is the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples come and they say, did you realize you offended the Pharisees? And then he has to tell the Pharisees or the disciples. Sometimes I get the two confused. What it means by the parable he's discussing. So. Let's put it this way. This now we're moving from tradition versus truth to purity versus impurity. And the discussion isn't simply about whether Jesus and his followers keep the traditions that the Pharisees maintained and tried to urge on other Jews. The discussion is about what God really wants his people to be like and how that desire can be fulfilled in the world. Here and elsewhere, Jesus is addressing the deep question How can the human heart be made pure? The point of what Jesus is saying then is that through his work, God is offering a cure for this deep level impurity. This brokenness that we all have relationally with God, self, others, and creation. And he's offering us a cure. He's asking uh, these disciples and these followers to understand that It's not enough to just manage the disease. Dallas Willard in his wonderful work, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, says that too often what we Christians have lapsed into is a gospel of sin management. We're not really seeking to be free from this and to be truly fleshed out, radical Uh, disciples of God, but instead we're just looking to keep sin on the peripheral enough that it won't keep crashing down on us. This cure cuts across what other teachers of Jesus' day were offering. They saw the purity laws as the right place to start, and some of them were content to stop there too. Wright says that Jesus saw these laws as irrelevant I would say that Jesus perhaps went further and saw them as the enemy. Because until those people could be rid of them, they couldn't see in fresh ways. Jesus, as he said in several of the parables, 
The parable in chapter 13, for example, is sowing seeds of the kingdom, planting plants that will grow and flourish. But people with other agendas, not planted by the Father, were planting plants that would be torn up. People were pushing the purity laws as a solution to the problem of Israel, where he said, like one blind person trying to show another blind person the way to go. Listen, Christianity should not just be to make us moral, upright citizens of America. If that's the end goal, then we're stopping way short of God's desire for shalom and peace and harmony and his kingdom to be set up on this world. If you're... Faith only models you into a moral, decent person. It's not enough. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, and it's difficult for us to see 2,000 years later in our context, but Jesus was a rabble-rouser. Jesus was leading an insurgence, a revolution. He was insubordinate against the empire of Rome. He was insubordinate against the traditions and customs that had left Israel bereft of the true understanding of what it meant to be pure in God's eyes. You see, there were two motifs at Jesus' day on how to be close to God. One was the Levitical purity code, and it was all about boundary markers. We as Jews, we eat the right things, we stay with the right people, we wash our hands, we do all of these things, we read Torah, we pray the Shema several times a day. This is what we do, and this is what makes us pure. It's this idea that as long as we keep what out there is dangerous and contagious away from us, then we'll be spotless, and we'll be with God. But Jesus comes bringing the other motif which is not the motif, not the understanding, or this, this, this platform of, of just being nice and polite and model citizen. Jesus comes in with a radical kingdom declaration that says the gates of hell can't prevent the kingdom from coming. There's nothing that's going to keep this insurgence of hope. This contagion of love that we're about to spread. Because, you see, there was this Levitical and priestly piece that says these are the rules. But the prophets... And the Jewish story would rise up time and time and time again and say, it's not your dang sacrifice that I'm interested in. God is saying to you, I'm tired of the bleeding of goats and of oxen. I don't need you to sing another ceremony or wave another branch. What I need you to do is I need you to take care of the widows and the orphans and the aliens amongst you. What I need you to understand is that revival is not us making all the right sacrifices and being pure. Revival is when justice floods the streets. When you care and love for the downtrodden. That's what Jesus goes on to iterate in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, you're sick, you're poor, despised. The world, even the religious leaders are telling you that you're cast off. God does not love you. God does not care for you. The sin of your parents, your ancestors, or your own has left you sick or penniless. And what I'm saying to you is blessed are you, the poor in spirit, for God is on your side. I, Jesus, am not afraid to wade into the morass of human indecency, of human pain, of human suffering, and to touch as I go. Loving and embracing the unlovable. If our faith does not compulse us to move beyond our strength and to flow instead the strength of God, then we're only going to be over here by ourselves sequestered from everywhere and the kingdom can't move forward. 
It's got to be more than that. And that's the heart of Jesus' message is this idea of purity and impurity and the fact that the gospel is the healing agent for humanity. You see, the real challenge of this passage, it comes to all of us, especially if we think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, is that we may not observe the purity codes of ancient Israel. But our hearts, our our thoughts and desires, our intentions, are they showing us that we're the people that God wants us to be? Are we being formed in the image of Jesus so that we are Christ's hands and feet? It'll come out in our words. Jesus says it. Are the casual things that you're talking about in discussions, are they showing that you are inside the person that you're meant to be? Again, I'm not talking about purity codes. I'm not worried about what the world says. I'm saying when you sit down at Facebook and you either share that message or you type that response, or when you're at work or you're on the fishing boat or you're at a book club, are you saying things you wouldn't want your children to say or people of another race and ethnicity or another course or another party? Uh, are, are you talking about people in a way that you realize, where did that come from? It's not enough to just be tasty. I think a lot of Christianity today is tasty. But it's not nutritious. (laughs) I mean, do you want to be Doritos to the world? Or you'd want to be a substantial, healthy meal. That's what God is calling us to. Is your faith meeting all the checklists? Or is it inciting those around you to rethink the way they do life? That doesn't come overnight all the time. Sometimes it comes in that moment. I mean, we got... Matthew telling the story, and it happened that way for him. Jesus says, follow me. He says, heck yeah. Follows him. Still not getting it, obviously. By chapter 15, he still hasn't gotten it. So it's a, yeah, we get it in this moment. But then there's a, what are you going to do after you walk out of this place today? It's not just a conversation in the car. Oh, that made sense, or that was crazy. I miss Jeff. Um, which I do too. But the question is, how do we today, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow at work, how do we in our normal seven-day-a-week, 24-hour life become the people that God has called us to be? You know where it shows up? It doesn't show up in you preaching in an auditorium full of people. It shows up when your kid's throwing up on you at night. Or it shows up when your boss and your coworkers are doing things against you, or it shows up when you're cut off in traffic. It shows up with what you do when you sit down to plan out what you're doing with your money. It shows up in so many small and large ways. This is my challenge for us today. 
Do we want to be a people of tradition? Yeah, the good ones, of course we do. But more than tradition, we want to be a people of truth. Truth spoken in love. And do we want to be pure people? Absolutely we want to be pure people. But for some of us, we need to understand what this idea of pure and pure really means. This, this community is a great community. I love this community. I've been a part of a lot of faith communities in my day. and I, I, I mean, I love it. Bring my wife here. She's coming. She decided she wanted to see me again. Um, she's been working. She's coming up in less than a month. And I'm, oh my, I'm really excited. Uh, I love this community. And it's not just Jeff and Jody. I love them, and I've loved them for a long time. But I sh- I mean, have you been around Liz? Have you been around Tommy? Have you, have, you, have you seen the different ways that lives are changed just in this community by people who, who sometimes will never get up here and say anything? You ought to, when you leave today, make, when you pick up your kids, you may, make sure you look them in the eye and you say, thank you. I appreciate you. If you don't have kids... Maybe you want to walk back there and look them in the eye and say, thank you. I appreciate you. All right. It's way too long. Jesus goes on to minister to the Canaanite woman. The gospel can't be held down by boundaries. Ethnic, racial, gender, societal status. The gospel moves. And then Jesus again, he's on it, walking among the sick. Saying, God is on your side. I don't care what anybody's ever told you in the name of Jesus before. God loves you. Just as you are. He loves you enough to not keep you there. But he loves you just as you are. You need to understand that. You're his beloved. So if you do me a favor. Let's just uh, let's stand to our feet. If you don't mind. If you can. If you're able. If not, chill. God, we're real grateful for you and that you love us, not because of our behavior, our background, or our belief, but because we're fashioned and formed in your image. We are Yahweh originals, and we're real proud to say that. And you are a crazy designer, making us in all ways and fashions. I'm so happy that I can confidently proclaim that you are on the side of humanity. You are for us. You are not against us. There may be forces in our life that we're giving credence and we're giving credibility and we're speaking um, that aren't of you and you're against those, but you are for us. The God who's willing to redeem and to restore Matthew so that he gets the task of giving your story to the very people that he abused financially and otherwise. That's the God who loves us right where we're at today. So I pray right now that you challenge our hearts and your minds. Let me say it this way, God. God, may you so warp our minds that we are unable to think any thoughts but your thoughts. Thoughts of love and peace and comfort and shalom. May you so engorge our hearts. 
that we're incapable of loving in a shallow manner, in a perfunctory or traditional alone manner, but that we love deep and our heart beats with your heartbeat for all of humanity, all of creation, to know you. And Lord, may you so deform and maim our hands and our feet that there's not even the illusion that we can walk this life or hold on to the things that we need to hold on without you. Carrying us, moving on us in every step of the way. Will you so torture us? (laughs) Will you so bend us that there is beauty and grace and strength that comes from our weakness as you move in us and through us to this world. Help us today to take five minutes and think about, am I pure in the way that you want me to be? Am I speaking the truth in love? Help us to make course corrections when we need to. In your name, name of Jesus, amen. Your homework is to love the heck out of people and to read the end of chapter 15. We'll see you next week.